and sharp horns. Two, three, I see you, Caleb. Cut it, go for it. Hang on. What are y'all laughing at? So Connie got a little lost in it. That's a good thing. One and all, Sieg Heil. I mean, welcome back to the latest and greatest edition of Nick's Nonfiction. You're here with your host, comic Nick Munez. Today on the show, we have got Edmund Catmill's Creativity, Inc. 1986, Steve Jobs bought Lucasfilm's digital division and founded Pixar. Pixar would be acquired by Disney in 2006. That's 20 years of untampered creativity producing the world's most iconic films. What is the Pixar Lamp's favorite restaurant? IHOP. Ed Catmull is a digital savant. Animation as we know it would be impossible without him. This man's created the first usable digital hands for film. If you've ever scathed someone who went to art school, they're always saying, drawing a hand is the final boss. You think you know your hand, like the back of your hand? There's all these weird creases I've never seen before. The proportions are that much harder. Toy Story changed the game in terms of animation. Ed gets a hit of creativity every morning walking into Pixar past two life-sized Lego characters. They were the first corporation to, you know, turn their office into a McDonald's playpen. The Google campus has their Quidditch field and like a AI sex robot armory. <laughs> Pixar was the first to turn the office into a playpen. My best friend's dad growing up, he designed Beanie Babies. So we would always play in their basement, which was basically a toy factory. There's this forbidden room that has all these collectibles. You know we broke those guys out of their shells. If Toy Story was real, that basement is another world. <laughs> Not every kid has the luxury of their parents being one of Santa's elves. I remember this man took us to Toys R Us one day, where a kid can be a pedophile. We were saying, what are you going to buy us? And he's like, no, you're hel here to help me win a raffle. Toys R Us was raffling off two life-size characters from Monsters, Inc. And so we each filled out like 10 ballots, stuffed the box like in Arizona County, as we were leaving the store, he grabs the rest of the pamphlet for entry and we beat feet out of there so no one else can participate. <laughs> About a week later, Carmine gets a call and they won a life-sized Mike Wazowski and Sully. So growing up, these sleepovers were traumatic events, waking up to a seven-foot-tall monster. And then you get a little bit older and Mike Wazowski, who has arms coming out of his head, can be put in some pretty silly exceptionally kinky sex positions. <laughs> We're going on tons of tangents today. Ed Catmull says self-censorship is the antagonist of creativity. We're going to get very meta. We're talking about plotting, writing, and brain trusts. What is a brain trust? This show right here. You know I just unleash all my most repressed memories here on this show. And in the comments, we have been getting people trusting with their ideas as well. We had that Swedish guy saying how the women are marrying the state. I've been writing theses about this idea. Great input. And I'm not sure why we have a bevy of vegans in the comments now. <laughs> What's the hardest part about being vegan? Keeping it to yourself. 
I don't rub my meat eating in anybody else's face. But just to make it abundantly clear, I feel not an ounce of remorse when I sink my canids into a bloody burger. I intentionally undercook my meat to preserve the vitality of the animal. I can feel its essence going into my veins. <laughs> These vegans, they don't understand. Hunters have a deep respect for their prey. The Bible says you have to shoo away a bird from the nest before you take its eggs. Vegans are out here eating mushrooms. Did you know mushrooms inhale oxygen? and exhale CO2. <laughs> Mushrooms are bad for the Green New Deal. These things are closer to animals, you vegan. Not so fun guy now, Mr. Salad. You gotta let me go on these tangents today. Self-censorship, he said, what was it, the antagonist? I would say it's the antithesis of creativity. If you're worried about microaggressing on somebody, you're never going to be able to unleash the true right brain. What makes Pixar different than any other corporation is their need for self-expression. You can't make a creative person conform to workplace culture and expect the entropy of art to take off from there. We're going to make fun of art today because you know most of it is money laundering and rich people storing their assets. I want to get to the root of what creativity truly is. We're getting psychedelic today. And of course... For all of our CEOs, we are going to learn how to motivate the workplace. <laughs> there was a ton of that bullshit in this book, too. I'm extracting the most fun stuff. How to, you know, no, it's a good way to end the year. And happy December topic. I'm going to access my inner fanboy. Talk about all these old Pixar characters that haunt my childhood. And then we'll go to the future. These Japanese anime production houses are paving the road of creativity, making some badass storylines how about you guys check an ad out before we get into it about the author edmund catmill make sure you guys are checking out harry schwant we are not abiding by the community guidelines over on instagram and uh the hikes over on patreon.com slash the niche Edmund Catmull was born in 1945. Edwin is an American computer scientist. He co-founded Pixar and was the president of Walt Disney Animation Studios. Spent his early childhood in western Virginia, moved to Salt Lake City where his father first served as a principal at Granite High School, then Taylorsville High School. I didn't know principals do the road. You think Edwin, he was a hall monitor and he just had a more beefed up pension compared to all of his buddies. He was a traveling around kid. His dad was always over his shoulders. He was obsessed with flip books growing up. At University of Utah, he developed spatial analyzing and subdivision surfacing in animation programs. That was that hand thing. We'll get into a little bit more. Those flip books, those probably enthralled all of us as a kid. You became your own director just with a pencil in the corner of your notebook. I remember what unlocked my mind was this optical illusion book that I had. It taught me that you can change your perspective when looking at something. There's this picture where it's an old looking guy and it's drawn in pencil really poorly. You turn the page upside down and if you change your focus it turns into an old lady. This applies to life baby. We gotta get kids on optical illusions not math problems. <laughs> it teach you to turn a bad day into a good day. Edmund Catmull is master of digital perspective. Take a look at his uh, IMDb backlog. It's basically every single Disney movie. Before the ad, 
if you guys have noticed, our devoted listeners might be noticing a lack of gifts. I recently acquired six hours of my week back. <laughs> by, um, we're changing the format up a little bit in 2022. Patreon viewers will be getting fully gift book reviews. It's the final fortnight for everybody else, the moochers, to get subscribed at a nearly non-existent price point over there. It's a buck. You can get hours, the Plato's Republic, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the Anatomy of the State, <laughs> timeless knowledge for one doll hair. Go check it out. Big changes coming up. Now time for a word from our sponsors. Chapter 1 animated. Edmund spent 13 years at a long conference table of 30 people while working for Lucasfilm. When it comes to creative inspiration, job titles and hierarchy, Edmund says, are meaningless. It goes naturally the most creative people at this conference table would graduate towards the center, and it was based on your time spoken. The group had shedded their artificial titles, and they had organized based on what he called ideological sync. Management decided to replace this table with one that had plaques on it. All of the creatives were asking for a circular table so they could see each other, try to connect with everybody. Instead, management comes through with a regimented square table that's even longer and more crowded with extra people. Nature of management starts with a decision made for a good reason. We're going to get you guys a new table. The initial decision prompts even poorer decisions which follow suit. Ed says, creativity is a process of building from the bottom up. Each decision is based on the last. He admits the best way to integrate the two is still a mystery. I mean, if you could figure out how to integrate the management and the workers, you will have figured out how to link the two halves of the brain. You know, still a mystery here. Nobody knows the best way to get people to collaborate. We'll revisit the table by the end of the book. Into Edmund's childhood, he had a creative foundation. He loved Steamboat Willie and was an Einstein fanatic. You know, they say Einstein couldn't do the math for what E equals MC squared. He theorized the concept, and then they got um, mathematicians from universities to come and make that into writing. So what is E equals MC squared? It's the two most universal units, mass times the speed of light squared. Mass speed of light. That works if you're on Saturn or in the Andromeda galaxy. So he's just saying we need to unify what E is, energy. What are hertz? What are watts? What are volts? These are all just signs of energy. Einstein was autistic. No, we need to unify this. We can simplify everything. You're going to see a similar mindset from uh, Edmund during the entire book today. And when he was watching the magical world of Walt Disney on Sunday afternoons, he said his creative mind would go crazy. He was having dreams after he watched these great movies. Last night, <laughs> I hate when people talk about their dreams. I had a dream that I was riding a bike and I was about to go into a building and I just put it in a bike rack and I didn't lock it up. I wake up at 3 a.m., look out my window, and I see a hobo carrying a bike. He's not riding it. It was on his shoulders. A little synchronicity in the world. It means nothing. I'm crazy. <laughs> this magical world of Disney, what happens in waking reality can influence your dreams. And I don't have that much creative input living on the fucking streets. I'm dreaming about hobos. <laughs> Edmund is saying it's good to question whatever's around you. His art teacher told his parents that he would get so lost in his projects he wouldn't hear the bell ring. He's always making uh, flip books, we said before. He's realizing that his 
management, half of his brain needs attention. Like in high school, he's saying, I got to hit the books. Finally goes to University of Utah, and his senior thesis was a digital model of the left hand. Pictures in the book were very weak. It looked like a um, crash bandicoot or a Mario's gloved hand in N64. <laughs> like it's very rudimentary. The specialty about it was the Z buffer. You look at all the accounts of um, geniuses Nikola Tesla. They say these men are able to picture to scale objects in their brain and rotate it. So your head is like a freaking museum of model boats and machinery. You just see how the things work from within. And think about what Edmund is doing. He is creating a little 3D box on a computer. And then whatever's in his mind, he's manifesting in that 3D space. That is a new plane of creativity. Like, if you look at how they made Beauty and the Beast in the older movies, we'll get into it. It's just layers of paper, holographic paper, that they shoot on top of each other. And so this is literally creating a world, this new uh, Toy Story and Beyond animation. Did Einstein also say matter cannot be created or destroyed? <laughs> like, he's not an artist making a fucking painting. This guy is rearranging systems. And yes, that can be artistic. I should drop this quote up front. Let me see if I can find it. Like, there's no such thing as true creation. You've heard these quotes, Salvador Dali, everything that's been created has been before. Creativity is linking patterns that nobody has linked before. This quote... A great deal of creativity is about pattern recognition, and what you need to discern patterns is tons of data. Your mind collects that data by taking note of random details and anomalies easily seen every day, maybe a hobo with a bike, quirks and changes that eventually add up to insights. That's a great quote. Like, think about the IT guys. They mostly sit there on JavaScript and program language all day. And then you have these designers who create linking systems. Or, like, think about engineers. Some of those guys just use the blueprints, and some of them are creating new types of circular staircases that that are suspended from the top down. It's I don't know if this makes sense. Like, the true creativity is pioneering something never seen before. Once the blueprint is out there, anyone can mimic the first, quote, artist. Ed invented his own Z-buffer system, which thinks is going to hurt his chance getting a design job. And he is correct. Only like the highest echelon of entrepreneurs or design production houses at that time understand the value that he is providing. It's 1979. Things are changing at a rapid pace. You know, Pong is turning into Pac-Man. You're expecting the next day someone to come up with a new Z-buffer. Alvi was the guy who reached out to him from Lucasfilm. And they start working side by side. The first project Ed Mill was on was revamping internal pixel radar software. And so he called his new operating system Patch Pixar. Pixel Radar. Pixar. He just made up the name. Lucasfilm, with all their kinds of savants, was a unique-looking office compared to all those other production houses. All the other mid-tier ones were putting their designers in straitjackets. And this is going to be a mistake by Jobs in the early years. Edmund was saying he's lucky off the bat to have been drafted somewhere with so much freedom. He's working with guys who are going on to make um, the Brave Toaster, the Iron Giant. 
and of course Star Wars Lucasfilm. Bob Thomas from Disney, the golden age, starts trolling around Lucasfilm. He's like, keep it up. We know, <laughs> like everybody knows they're just trying to get the Disney bid. And so he starts parading around trying to get them to work harder. 1983, George Lucas and his wife split up. It was made for messy finances and a disintegrating Lucasfilm. He wanted to go work on live action, and all of these designers, like Edmund, know their place in animation. In comes the uh, chicken hawk, Steve Jobs. He knows how to poach a business right when it's on the edge. Alan Kay was one of his partners. Steve Waz, I guess, was taking care of uh, Apple at the time. Edmund said Jobs thoroughly interviewed every single Lucasfilm designer. He asked them about their lives, their long-term goals, and like their innermost feelings. This was not a job interview. It was a therapeutic session. He throws together a Jobs-like speech. Everybody who's going to take the job with me, we are going to revolutionize animation. Do we have any names for our potential business? And Edmund Catmull speaks up. Pixel Radar. Pixar. What the fuck? Did you just pull that out of your ass? Waz, did you hear that? Pixar. I like it. How about we go to chapter two? Defining a goal. They're revolutionizing animation. And that little phrasage can only take you so far. What does it mean to revolutionize animation? What product does Pixar aim to sell? Define your goal. It's loose language. Revolutionize animation. The American Revolution was creative because we implemented a well-written breakthrough constitution. All those French revolutions were not creative because they would just implement the same dictator, which is what I'm very scared is going to happen in America. Jobs knows his name has heat because he's dealing those Apple computers and all eyes are going to be on Pixar's first product. They start selling the Pixar imaging computer. Designers are acting as salesmen, literally going through the phone book, calling other production houses, selling their stuff when they should be, using the imaging computer to maybe make a product. The company is drowning under its own weight. People who should be focusing on the product have the added stress of finances as well. He's reading salesman books, buy low, sell high. Edmund the Creative, dare to fail, focus, hustle. What should I focus on? How hard should I hustle? Steve Jobs. He's getting angrier by the day. He's barking down everybody's neck. We're on this path of failure. Do I need to hire new people? Good amount of added stress. So the people try to let their inner creativity flow. There was still no internal agreed upon price for that uh, Pixar imaging computer. So they didn't even know how much they were selling it for. Edmund said one of his buddies <laughs> sold a computer for $122,000. This is like the highest profit margin of any computer at the time, except for whatever DARPA underground government computers they got. So Pixar gets this posh reputation of only being for expensive production houses. And then Steve Jobs gets all the designers to work as recruiters because they have a selling model. I mean, in one way, it's an unreal deal. You sold a $100,000 computer. You can make a $50 million Pixar film with that computer. The thing is, they won't. <laughs> like the guy at Guitar Center who sold me this $30 mic, he had zero confidence that I was going to show up every week and get a 1,000 people listening every single time. You know, if you sell the systems, it doesn't really matter that much because not everybody with a bunch of colored pencils is going to put the effort into making a masterpiece. 
Pixar also bought up. <laughs> it's like a, the Yankees. They bought up all the talent anyway, so it doesn't matter if anybody else is playing the game. With one computer sold, the motto changes to lost time is lost money. And they're getting everybody on the production line. Maybe Jobs just saw these guys as a quick turnout, you know, because he pimped out a bunch of... He's an entrepreneur. He might have just been trying to burn out these guys and milk Lucasfilm. He also had his own uh, personal project going on. Jobs, through the 80s, it was called N-E-X-T. It was this refresh computer. He doesn't have a defined goal, not focusing on one thing. Pixar was $50 million in the hole at the time. Catmill making it abundantly clear. This was mismanagement. How could you fail with all that talent? Steve starts calling people for conflict resolution sessions. He's ready to change. Whatever you guys want to do, let's do it your way now. 86 to 89, they start putting together some actual storyboards. And then Jeff Katzenberger comes along, offers Pixar the Little Mermaid. They deny it. They're not even ready because all their their $50 million in debt. Every friggin' designer has a suit on and is in Wall Street. They deny the Little Mermaid. Jeff Katzenberger gave priority on the next Disney animated film to Pixar. That's huge. That big old writing room pitches Toy Story, which Katzenberger loves. He asked for a prototype. They didn't even have uh, characters yet. Pixar knew that they wanted to make a movie from the toys' perspective, but they still didn't have characters. <laughs> you don't have anything. That's barely an idea. That could be a 10-second gif. A kid goes into his room, plays with the toys, walks out. He comes back in, and the toys are in a different position. He just rips his hair out and then gets put in guidance counseling in school. <laughs> it's the end of Toy Story. Katzenberger had two executives who wanted Woody to have a little bit more edge. They suggested that jealousy. It makes him more of a a human if he was just so happy that Buzz showed up and became the hot new toy. It wouldn't be as realistic. So it was surprising to see Disney suggesting putting a little more grit on the characters. They spent like three years discussing the angles of the character development, and they actually drew a couple frames for Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast at the time. So they're creating different branches within Pixar. 1993, they had a big pitch to Disney with that new Woody character, and they're greenlit for the first ever independent Pixar film, Toy Story. Came out in 2003. The writers perfected the hero journey because just like that first computer they sold, they know this is going to set the trend for what their animation films are like. When Toy Story came out, Jobs received an offer for Pixar at $150 million. Toy Story 1 made $370 million. Jobs is seeing, <laughs> I made my $50 million debt back, and we got control of the formula now. I'm not selling out, that was our first movie. He puts all efforts into Bugs Life. Last part of the chapter, they now have a defining goal. The designers were walking taller than they ever had. Ed is saying on the way to the goal, they need to establish an identity. While Bugs Life was in the pipeline, Katzenberger shows back up and asks if they can do Toy Story 2, which originally was against all of the designers' ideas. We're not doing any sequels. And Jobs is like, <laughs> it's $300 million on the line. We're doing sequels. They split into an A team for Bugs Life, a B team on Toy Story 2. They keep reassuring themselves. I, okay, this will be the only sequel Pixar ever does. Mm -hmm. Bugs Life drops 1998, makes $360 million, 
and then Toy Story 2 follows up in 1999, making 500 million. <laughs> Writers said they were ashamed of Toy Story 2. It had rushed graphics. Remember that end scene in Toy? They were in the airport, and the prospector was just jumping around on the conveyor belts. It seemed really darkly lit. It was not a boast of animation that you're usually expecting from Pixar. It does seem rushed. Jobs told the employees Disney doesn't think we can do it again. This was probably just trying to get under their skin. Toy Story 2 bomb, what's going on with you guys? You don't have it in you anymore? This is the biggest cash cow. You know him as the CSO. He's going to ride that into the grave. Did you guys have the Toy Story video game on N64 growing up? <laughs> that shit was mind-blowing. And then they had the all the plush toys you got. You know, they're selling more than just the movie tickets. Katzenberger asks again, he more so demands it, you guys better put a little team together for Toy Story 3. And Steve put his foot down. All right, it's going to come out maybe 10 years from now because we're not the sequel production house. And they shoot for 2010, literally a decade later. It's not <laughs> that myth that was going around online. Well, actually, Toy Story came out in so late of time because they wanted to wait for their target audience to be in college. That's all bullshit. Steve Jobs was able to buy him some extra time so they could kill the franchise a little bit more slowly. <laughs> They're just desecrating all of our childhood movies now. Fucking, what was Toy Story 3? Lotso Bear took them to the daycare concentration camp, and then they went to the fucking incinerator. This was Schindler's Toys. They finally have some long-term definable goals at Pixar, and they earned the most in this period before <laughs> there's a little more overreach. Let's go to Chapter 3, Protecting the New. Decision-making is easier with more people communicating fully and openly. He says collective swaths of information can be cut off when people start to self-censor. Now they have this internal culture at Pixar, so people are policing each other to reinforce their understanding. You know, I don't think Lightning McQueen would actually ride out of Radiator Springs on the night of the big race. <laughs> That's not in line with the hero's journey. So it's constricting their plotting because they have a formula that they want to follow. Ed says CEOs effectively change work culture when they can elicit candor from the staff. And so this is getting worse, I'm saying. All the underlings are going, well, you know, Mr. Jobs is expecting us to make a really positive storyline. There can't be any edge on the wood. And Jobs sees that this is going on, and he implements the brain trust. It says, one room where anything can be said and nothing can be repeated. <laughs> to be the most creative, you can say anything in this room, and you cannot be held accountable. You know, I just used in the intro for the video that movie, Soul. If they didn't have the brain trust for that writing room, someone would have been... What is this, a movie about a black guy playing jazz? That's racist! You're never going to get creative if people are fucking micro-aggressing. It's hard to protect their new order <laughs> with all the expectations and all the millions of eyes on them. So it's not even an internal uh, self-policing. There are actual people on Twitter trying to police Disney. It's working. <laughs> Yo, think about this new movie, Luca. It's about that gay mermaid boy. Why do kids need to see that? We're trying to annihilate their childhood and teach them adult concepts before it even comes. <laughs> Think about it. Why was Soul about death? 
I think we're entering the dark age of Disney. It's woke movies. I'm not even making this one up. You guys have probably seen the leaks they're putting out. Their new one is called Encanto. It's about a hulking butch lesbian wrestler. Why? A normal luchador movie would be too empowering for cis young white males? I mean, (laughs) that's about Mexicans anyway. Pixar is taking this identity politics and seeing how far they could push it. So maybe it is creative in some lens I can't even see. It's not like they're actually messing with people and taking advantage of it. The next movie is going to be a kid going through chemical castration. (laughs) You know, but ready for this? It takes place from the point of view of the scalpel. I'm Sammy the Scalpel. I've turned prepubescent penises into clits. (laughs) Pixar 2020. Ed said, Self-censorship happens in eras when artists curtail their work to the masses. You know, people want to see a movie about a lesbian wrestler. (laughs) I don't think that's what's happening, Edmund. Artists curtailing their work to the masses. I think we're in a darker era where the art is straight up controlled top down it's the opposite of enlightenment it literally is a disney dark age that small pocket of freedom after toy story one's reception is far gone it's probably just russian bots that are tweeting out that donald duck was an (laughs) anti-semite bugs life was about all the ants revolutionizing against the grasshoppers they taxed the ants grain production There's none of these, like, esoteric scenes in any of the Pixar movies anymore. The only thing they're hiding in their movies are pedophilia symbols. (laughs) Got an Ed quote here. Societal conditioning discourages telling the truth. That's why (laughs) the lying sociopath becomes the CEO. To rise the ranks, you have to be the most conditioned person, which includes having to lie to people. In the brain trust, he found that at some point in the creative process people got lost in what they're making. Edmund was saying, you have to completely sever the tie to societal expectations to truly create something unheard of. Otherwise, you're always trying to bring it... But how does this relate to society and real life? How is the average man going to understand this? If the average man understands it, how would it have ever been created in the first place? That sounded elitist, (laughs) but I'm just trying to have us get the most creative art instead of just sequels out here. And even soul isn't that creative. Again, deflowering children. Why do they have to learn about dying? Is this? It's a tale about purgatory. They didn't make this up. They're ripping off scripture. Yo, <laughs> Matt, John, Luke, and Paul were the original brain trust. <laughs> what if Ezekiel went to Israel and watched people create dildos out of silver and gold? That's a true story. What if God was so mad he flooded the world? Okay, I like that. Matt, what'd you get that from? The Epic of Gilgamesh? All storytelling uses past devices. We'll hit him with a deus ex machina here, and then a falsetto crescendo at the end. (laughs) I mean, one of the rules Ed said was, you can't call people out on their plot. Like, if somebody fucks up the flow of the writing room, just move on to the next person. Don't even acknowledge it. What Ed is getting right here is you gotta drop the weight of whatever your ego is holding on to you bombed okay move on immediately don't dwell on it or if you can dwell on it and make it funny but that doesn't work in a writing room (laughs) you have to be able to operate independently while being able to become a symbiote with the group 
those Bible stories are more funny. The brain trust. <laughs> you ever hear the story? Moses required his lover, Zephora, to bring him her son's foreskin. How do you even come up with that? They had to have a closed-off room. In the Bible, they would have been killed by the Romans for that story. That's a fucking Seinfeld episode. I wanted to take this girl out on a date, but she said her son was never brisked. Wait a minute, Jerry. This girl won't let her son have brisk iced tea? The brain trust, for the first time since Lucasfilm, got rid of the hierarchical table with plaques in everybody's name. As he said, this helped the flow of the room. People weren't, you know, you bombed in that seat forever and everybody remembers the stench on your plaque. It's a different room makeup the next day. Catmill's favorite trust was when they plotted Wreck-It Ralph. He said they passed around the writing room table a Rubik's Cube with different plot devices. Remember the, what was it, Wreck-It Ralph? That's when Sarah Silverman gets friggin' double-crossed in the Candy Cane Forest. Dr. Steve Brule is ripping off the Mario Brothers the whole time. That movie is a trip. The best writer's rooms. <laughs> you ever seen that uh, episode of South Park when they make fun of Family Guy and they say in their writing room all they have is a tank of whales and they pick up balls and put them in random order with words on it. Eyes, bullet, look. Hey, Lois, did you hear about that time a guy took my eye out with a bullet? And that's how fucking Family Guy gets created. They're just bashing each other. It makes you want to be a fly on the wall in some of these brain trusts. That's an interesting technique, the Rubik's Cube of mystery. He drops some Eastern corniness about the internal being vaster than the external. It's true. I mean, the universe is observable. There is an end to what is out there. There's only friggin' 100 elements if you can keep opening doors in your mind, you could create planets that NASA couldn't even imagine CGIing. Planet made of bubblegum and jello. I'm thinking about Candy Rush from Wreck It Ralph that infected my creativity. I gotta meditate it off, go within. Did you guys see recently? There's that fucking story about NASA. They said a rookie scientist found a life harboring planet on his first day. So you're telling me. The smartest people God ever made, NASA scientists, completely overlooked backup Earth. Going within rather than without. This uh, girl I went to school with, she now works for NASA. This chick was a ditzy Zumba instructor. Compartmentalization is my point. The most systematically intelligent kid I ever met was recruited for the Air Force Research and Development. If we let... NASA and the government choose where our creativity is funneled through. World War III is going to have some pretty colorful bombs. I saw this new thing called the Nighthawk 5. <laughs> Dude, it's a flying saucer. Like, look at what these R&D guys are creating. Of course, that could be used to make the world a more lovable place, man. <laughs> I kind of want to just comment on the explosives that get rolled out in World War III. It's going to be sick think about that shit though where our creativity goes in society and <laughs> where it gets siphoned off this chapter is talking about going more within to find your creative side uh steve jobs was really big into transcendental meditation and i just did a fucking seinfeld mockery that guy does like an hour of tm every single day you need to have that clean slate to get back whatever thing you could start to improv off of 
He's going, forget space, forget dinosaurs. These movies have been done before. We need to go within. So you know that movie Inside Out was like a new era for Disney. You have a fresh clarity when you're able to do that meditation, says Edmund. It's kind of easy to get the initial spark of creativity. He's going, protecting the new is difficult. I mean, (laughs) conformity is crammed down your throat every single corner you turn on the east coast you can't walk more than a block without seeing an advertisement i'm from jersey the philosophy is forget about it altitude philosophy is turn on tune in drop out west coast fill wait what edmund is teaching more about candor than creativity here he's teaching the secrets to enlightenment holding on to the new and keeping fresh it would be sacrilegious not to bring up mushrooms here it dissolves the wall to the subconscious and you can like we said in the beginning of the show how do you make your management side go with your designer side take a microdose (laughs) i mean if you've ever written on just a cap of the golden teacher you're flowing otherworldly heinous ideas out of the tips of your finger jobs was really big into acid in his 20s he's outspoken about it This guy is well aware of what's called the afterglow, holding on to that fresh perspective. I mean, if OSHA can mandate your employees have to try mRNA therapy, (laughs) I think Jobs should have been allowed to make his designers take some SID. This book is saying Jobs would not attend the brain trust meetings because he knew his influence. He saw his writers were feeling boxed in by the culture, like we started the chapter, so he gave them a safe space to offend each other and the only time he said steve jobs would go into the room would be every few weeks and he would sit in somebody's seat and then he would make them take somebody else's seat so he was just there to shuffle things up this guy is he knows how to separate the haves and when they need to meet upside down world this new safe space is to minimize the amount you can say a true safe space is nothing matters here you could do say what you want nobody's offended you don't mean it John, Andrew, Pete, and Lee were like the four disciples of the brain trust room, (laughs) writing the Bible of Pixar. Ended the story with a military study called the Free Umbrella Experiment. On an extremely rainy day on this particular military base, they put a bunch of umbrellas by the door. And after a meeting, they waited to see how many people were going to take the umbrella. And now none of these rookies knew the correct rules of engagement for having an umbrella do i have to take my hat off do i have to stand at attention when i use an umbrella so instead of staying dry everybody just decided to get wet to fit in edmund is saying self-destructive acts are more common than not in order to be one with the majority and so if you ignore this it will sabotage the production of whatever ceo you are Catmull says there's no such thing as failure-free. Your best idea is to have a controlled environment for failure. This takes us to chapter four, change and randomness. Michael Eisner starts coming through the office, asks Edmill to create the computer animation project system, CAPS. This is the new generation of Pixar, and they're hoping to leapfrog DreamWorks, who was a little bit better in this mid-00 era. Each movie was somehow creating a hunger for more. They say the next generation maybe will make an exponential growth in our movies. Eisner gave Catmull the 
ugly baby project. <laughs> like how he played God and created the first hand. Eisner wants Catmill to create the first ugly baby. You gotta respect current Pixar. Like opposed to DreamWorks, they're making Boss Baby 1 through 10. Pixar is always trying to flex their animation. Maybe not with Encanto. If DreamWorks had balls, they would try to make the Shrek babies ugly. DreamWorks actually does have some balls for Shrek. It's calling out Beauty and the Beast. You know, they want to turn the beast back into a man at the end. I thought the whole point of this feminist movie is that Big is beautiful and she's going to love you even if you're a gross beast. No, at the end he wishes to change back. And then Shrek is like, Fiona is an ugly ogre. I would still clap those green cheeks. She's beautiful on the inside. <laughs> uh, Finding Nemo was the first movie that utilized caps, and it grossed $940 million worldwide. That light under the sea was leaps and bounds different than anything else at the time. Think about how much different it is than The Little Mermaid. When you look into gaming graphics, that's probably where all the creatives are now. Gaming graphics are all about light exposure, and if it changes by the angle of the 3D world you're in, and if you remember Finding Chemo, there was all this radiation coming through the water. In 2003, little Mimo, <laughs> Mimo, the Momo, little Finding Chemo was the highest grossing animation film ever to date and the second highest earning movie of 2003, outstaged everything live action. This never happened before. Lion King 2 came out the following year and that did not use caps. They restricted the use of it like a secret weapon. Lion King 2 didn't even get the title of Pixar. That was a terrible movie, and then they did one and a half. The only thing good about those sequels was the Timon and Pumbaa marshmallow. Remember that cereal? That gave me a good sugar rush to start the day. Pixar is inviting designers to make shorts with their latest cap system, and they release it at the beginning of their films to get a response. Up and Inside Out started as those pre-short movies. Ed Mill said at the time Pixar became a farm system for talent and random storylines. They're making the best talents interns and just telling them to make a short story. Farming the next gen. Eisner takes a liking to Catmill because he got artistic with that ugly baby project. He made the beast and the baby. So he did not follow the rules. Pretty creative of Catmill. He says the contrast in the characters brings out more details than you would have seen with just one. It's like those memes, RTX on. You need to have both sides to appreciate the darkness and the light. Catmill says we were a caterpillar unknowingly building its cocoon. In this era, they made The Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, and Wally. All consistent bangers. They think there's another gear to shift into, which I don't think we've seen yet. They hire eight interns to storyboard potential ideas, stocked up dozens of yellow-lit stories for the future. Ratatouille was one of the yellow-lit ideas from the 90s. They had that story for a long time. That sounds like a Pixar 90s premise. A rat that cooks food. Hilarity ensues. Patton Oswalt. <laughs> this comedian is still selling tickets because he voiced a rat. Which is ironic, because now he refuses to perform for unvaccinated plague rats. Every comedy club in the country has rats, Patton. Why don't you check your audience for herpes? 
What if I show up with a negative PCR test? Nope. You must have the state serum in your veins to laugh at a comedy show. At the tail end, the rat tail end of this can't-do-wrong era, Edmund is saying everyone started to get overconfident. Brave, frozen. What was that Black Princess movie came out? The frog one. It seems like a lack of creativity. Like, they just did three grim fairy tales in a row what's new about that at least in the golden age they went um beauty and the beast bambi cinderella lady and the tramp you know it went back and forth they're not just throwing out three crappy frozen elsa all these movies in a row some different brave that movie was garbage they're leaving these little boys out to hang i gotta hang with the little boys then Edmund says the hunger for more was being replaced by a cultural typecast. Again, they're falling into a formula, a workplace culture. Not a good thing. Like, you're never going to see a movie like uh, Lady and the Tramp again. That was about classism. Much like Bugs Life, if they storyboarded Lady and the Tramp now, (laughs) someone in the brain trust would go, It has Tramp in the title. That's slut-shaming. Oh, man, we'll never see two dogs eat spaghetti again. He says the third revolution of Pixar takes place. Writers and designers realize that they're mailing it in after, like, Brave and all those ones. Coco drops. Everyone is like, Disney, did you just make a movie about dead kids? What, are you going to cry about it? I bet you already did when you watched the movie. There's all these side projects going on in the third revolution. They made most of Big Hero 6, and they teamed up with a Japanese-style animation house. It didn't get released under Pixar's name, but you could feel that's mostly a Pixar movie. That's a good one. Baymax, the big, fluffy medical thing. But if they made that movie now, he would be fired from the hospital for (laughs) non-complying. Edmund says it's natural to want to hang on to a story when it works. It will stop working. You see the trends are becoming um, longer. Like I'm saying, they'll just milk three princess movies in a row. He said nobody was sure when they called the movie up if that would work. It's just two letters. UP, never been done before. These designers are going to new lands to try to get new uh, landscapes ingrained in them for the next generation of stories. Edmund says, change is not good for the sake of change. It's good to fulfill inspiration and genuine curiosity, which are often intertwined with creative change. Don't just put plaques on the tables to manage. Got to do it when people are genuinely curious to see something new or inspired. Chapter 5, The Hidden. Started with a story about Apollo, the god of poetry, who is fawning over the king of Troy's daughter. So Apollo puts a spell on the king of Troy's daughter, and everybody thinks this girl is crazy. She's walking around Troy saying, There's got to be a giant wooden horse with men inside. Everyone's like, What the fuck are you talking about? You're crazy. So the only man left for her is Apollo. That's game right there, baby. The act of poetry or good storytelling is concisely communicating unseen phenomena. Ed thinks this story is about people who can perceive truth. When most people think this story is about valid threats are ignored. You know, there's a there's a novel coronavirus, everybody hide in your house. That's a real threat that you have to be scared of, and people ignore threats throughout history. Or maybe the threat is not being able to perceive truth. <laughs> Ed is going, an unseen phenomena bought into words is the best 
thing about storytelling. So think about the movie Inside Out. It's about emotions. Nobody's ever seen an emotion, but they made a movie about this unexplainable phenomena. Your depression is an unseen phenomena. Therefore, it does not exist. <laughs> Apollo, the god of poetry, ties in nicely also. That's what poetry is for as lame as putting feelings into words. Ed said, acquiring the keys requires identifying multiple levels of unknown within the mind. Keep on opening those doors. It goes back to your boss trying to be nice to you, like Steve Jobs. There's no level of unknown. He's faking it. Like when you start playing into the boss, oh, you want to hang out with this weekend, boss? No, they will never see you outside of the workplace. <laughs> you got to, Ed called it pursuing an unknown state of mind. So it's better for your boss just to be a dick to you. So you know that's who he is and you're not getting confused in the Maya of this person trying to be nice to you. He's like, your creativity suffers when you base your behavior off of how other people react. And... <laughs> I was going to make a gay joke about flair, but some people do that to get other people to react, which is not the real art. And then some people are just gay and don't tell anybody, and that's the real art. Not guilty as charged. I'm surprised that hasn't been brigaded in the comments yet. Om gay. It's never the guys who are chasing women around who become the creatives. And trust me, I... <laughs> My thoughts per year has taken a dive, but I think I'm happier for it. There's a level of unknown in just running around doing nothing. Edmund said that Walt Disney in his 20s created Steamboat Willie. This guy got married when he was 23 and all of his best work happened right after. Like even in college, you see the guys will take a semester off of pursuing chicks and they get smarter. Nietzsche fucking unified the German culture because he swore off a pussy. <laughs> I mean... This is about unseen phenomena. Hindsight is 2020. You don't know that you're caught up in a love spell and you're tripping off of opium. <laughs> you're no different than the hobo with a bike. You can't see it until you have the hindsight. It's a hidden phenomena. And he's going, for some people, feelings are a hidden phenomena. <laughs> some people say they don't even have a voice in their head. He talks about the marriage being the modern brain trust. And this is why Disney getting married so early was great. His <laughs> wife was on board with making Nazi propaganda. <laughs> you know, you know, millions of women are just obsessed with dating in this country. If we got them obsessed with sewing, <laughs> we would see the next Betsy Ross. Bob Ross, it's a light chapter. We could do some word association. That guy was married after he was a drill instructor. He married his high school sweetheart, you know, the painter. Imagine the world without Bob Ross paintings, those creativity. It all just starts with a happy little streak. And then 30 minutes later, he drew an entire landscape it looks you could jump into. Imagine Bob Ross's paintings had he not spent his entire life indoctrinating plebes at boot camp. He would have accessed that other side, the unseen, a little bit more. I don't know what we're getting at here. Twain, we got a quote. Lest we be like that who sits down on a hot stove. She will never sit down on the stove lid again. And this is well, but also she will never sit down on a cold one anymore. If you get burned, you're more than likely to shy away from ever trying again at this one thing. He's going, people that can refine their hindsight acquire the power of growth. 
is when he drops hindsight can be hidden like your senses. And when they did the inside-out brain trust, they invited a neuroscientist into the room. He said, 40% of what we think we see comes in through our eyes. Your brain fills in most of the field of vision. If this is also indicative of the thought process, that means 60% of how you see the world is a construct in your head. Like we talked about last episode, you're looking at a clock, everything else blurs out. What you are focusing on with your cognizant mind is the clock. And what you're making up, the other peripheral field of vision, is your indoctrination. So if you got the cultural narrative running through that brain process, it's going to be hard to make something independent. Neuroscientist was saying that this is how magic works. This 60% of your eyesight is filled in by your brain. He goes, if you have a keen eye, you can see the misdirection, but naturally the magician is able to pull the subconscious half of your brain back. Like humans are built to be tricked. If your brain didn't fill in the gaps, you'd be fucking freaking out. <laughs> What's How come everything except for the clock is black? Better yet, you go to sleep for eight hours every single night. <laughs> your brain has to fill in that gap. Where the fuck was I? I, I mean, the conscious me, where did that go? I have no sense of what happened in those six and a half hours aside from the bike dream. Where was the conscious being? It's just gone. That's when you got to start reading Philip K. Dick. The Adjustment Squad. You're actually swapping a consciousness when you say That's where the fucking real creativity is. Philip K. Dick. Highly recommend. Edmund says this fill-in mechanism is why relationships fail. If you're not on the same exact brainwave as your partner, none of your stories are going to be aligned. <laughs> you know, if you tell the how we met story wrong, your girlfriend breaks up with you immediately. Failed relationship. He says jealous people will assume a higher percent of the time. You come home five minutes late. So, did you run into your ex? How long were you cheating on me today? Like, jealous people, the narrative is just already flowing. There's no discovery period. Everything's a court case. Most people have flawed mental models and a confirmation bias. And due to misdirection, most people's worldview is drastically askew to what's happening on a historic scale. Maybe look around you. Mental models and worldview can fall prey to misdirection. I've been thinking too much about my boy Dostoevsky lately. He saw the rise of the Bolsheviks and commented on how it split the populace. There were the convenient idiots and then the people with more than one brain cell. As this happens in countries and monarchs through history, the real men are taking their labor elsewhere. Like the underground man, how come there's so many four higher signs everywhere? Maybe it's because the government pays you more not to work. He's going, this split happens usually around 300 years into an empire. He said that's the average, and America is right on schedule. He said that Bolshevik Russia was below reproductive replacement. I don't know, go back and read Dostoevsky. That guy is the pinnacle of creativity. And we started the year with him, Crime and Punishment. <laughs> that was... 
man, timeless story about Raskolnikov. He wants to be a writer. And his mom is going, why can't you just be a fucking lawyer? And he's like, what? So I can kick people out of their apartments who are behind on rent? Or do you want me to be on the other side and defend rapists? And all the older women in that story, the grandmother of Sophia was like, I don't understand why these men aren't just fucking making us money. <laughs> this is the split of the state. I think you see it at certain points. It almost crested the wave in the 60s. We might see the crest, boys. <laughs> That's why I said earlier in the episode, I'm scared of what's going to replace it. But in my life, if I could be a little Monroe and witness a revolution, hey, I didn't start the damn fire. <laughs> when you're married, he says your house becomes the brain trust. It's your partner. If they're bringing outside culture in, like Mrs. Walt Disney, it could go south. <laughs> and I just want to link this point in. In Soviet Russia, wives would call the secret police on their husbands and children. There are accounts of children putting extra bread in their pocket and then moms sending them to the gulag. Like, this stuff is only ratcheting up in <laughs> 2022. That snitch campaign is going to come back. You get paid to tell on your neighbors who go outside. Zero trust in society <laughs> in this current era. Jesters are even lying about their opinion on the king. Like, what's even the good of a jester anymore if he's supporting the medical decree? I've been quite forthright. No government injection will touch a vein in my body till the day I die. <laughs> this shit has polarized in a Dostoevskian sense. Ed says bachelor pads are geometrically profound. <laughs> Not Raskolnikov's who would shower in his sink. He's going every married man nest follows a template. I mean, some of my rooms I've had in the past look like a TGI Fridays. And once a girl is in there, she starts turning your bathroom into a slop house. I'm telling you, when I get fully independent, my pad is going to look like Pee Wee's Playhouse. Remember the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse for talking Disney? That slogan was getting kids to think outside the box. <laughs> and then there was the elder ill-advised Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which crammed young creative talents into boxes. How are Miley Cyrus and Hillary Duff doing out there? You see companies like Google, they try to encourage playfulness, but they have this oppressive culture underlying it, much like Disney when they take in these young minds. It makes the entire creative process moot. You have to be able to separate the two, otherwise they'll just infect each other. Great point he had that in the first 20 years, uh, the like Toy Story 1 era in the writing rooms, Every single designer loved the Honeymooners. <laughs> After this third revolution, you know, Jobs isn't really there anymore. He's working on Apple. There were people in the writer's room who were offended by the Honeymooners jokes that they were making. It's just marriage humor. Like, that is offending some of the people in the workspace. I would pull out my dick at the table and start helicoptering it around pour hot coffee on it. Are you offended now? That's what I'm thinking. Google is so good at this facade of saying, oh, look at how creative we are. Go out and make mistakes, although every mistake you make will be permanently stored in the cloud. <laughs> Why are we, like, going out of our way to look through people's cloud history to cancel them for something they said when they were 20? We need 
to go back in time and cancel Donald Duck. Disney made cartoons for the Nazis. There are even more. I had a hard time trying to find that clip for the intro. There's SS Mickey Mouse out there. If Disney let Pixar go full brain trust, I bet they would create some of the most fascist, edgiest, hilarious content on earth. I mean, why don't they show these fucking snowflakes that are offended by the honeymooners? The old footage of Donald Duck Sieg Heiling. You're too fragile to work here, baby. I'm sorry. It's comical how he canceled people when Donald Duck is legitimately on record saying the N-word. That one's even further back. I couldn't find it. He dropped at the end of this chapter the process. And, I mean, you kind of heard the process today. This is just so you could feel good and tell your employees. Step one, dallying and problem solving together. You got to get your designers to know each other and do a group building activity. Step two, research tips. Make your people watch a movie together so that they have uh, something in common they could write about. Step three, the power of limits. How far can you take the idea? Step four, integrate tech and art. And then step five, short experiments and continue learning. And then this process was their controlled failure until 2011. Brave comes out and they have this new six-step program implemented by Disney. There are limits to data. Don't rely on it too heavily. Your secret weapon is what's hidden inside your head. And to our last chapter, number seven, the unmade future. Most people have a romantic idea of how creativity happens. The lone visionary lights a candle. He spends the night in solitude as to act as a beacon for the muse. Two open minds, Edmund says, are better than one. But one open mind is better than one open mind and a closed mind. Like I said, the infectivity can reach the deepest layers of society. Creativity is more like a marathon than a sprint. He says dedication, protracted struggle, and avoiding pitfalls is the game. Final comments on Jobs here. He always told the team the best way to predict the future is to invent it. It's a good point. There is nothing but the present. <laughs> that one is like drinking an ocean. I mean, what the fuck is time? It's just something your brain made up to measure distance. How far am I away from the future? I am X time away. I'm sorry to try to go Einstein relativity on you again. But there is only the moment. And Jobs understood this. He's saying the future is only as much as you are nudging it. Like my favorite commencement speech. I think I have it. Yeah. Steve Jobs, I think it was Stanford. He goes, your time is limited. Don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of other people drown out your own inner voice. And most importantly, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Extremist. You cannot predict your own future. You got to guide it. Otherwise, someone else or some other system is already guiding you. Stephen King had that book on writing last year. He says once you give the characters morals that you're building, you don't have to write the story anymore. The story writes itself. So you got to find something that a character will stand for rather than stand against. You know, it's easy to know what you're fighting against, but who are you? Again, travel inside as we get to the end here. Everything else is secondary. 
that Stephen King point is great. I mean, I'm friggin' 20. Nothing makes sense in the world. <laughs> it seems like the entire decade is just setting in your morals. Like, I see a lot of my old friends fissioning. I'm committing myself to being the corporate man. I'm going to dedicate myself to God or to rearranging my physique. Like, people just decide what to put their stamina points into, and then the rest of the story just plays out. So character building, Mr. King knows, is one of the most integral parts of the story. Ed Catmull is going, I was there for the character building period of Pixar. I was able to push it out into the world. <laughs> and he's watching it get corrupted. They're fornicating his child. One of these directors had a good analogy that uh, creativity is skiing. So to uh, try to stay in this flow state, you don't want to fall. Again, just like that pothole before. George Lucas in the early days would refer to it as the zone. And it's the most creative single space that man can get into. This, uh, Ed Mill is just doing another chapter about how this writing room is getting corrupt. You ever been in a relationship where a chick will defend a point that she doesn't believe just to get a rise out of you? Like, what you're doing there is not only manipulative and ineffective, it's destroying your creativity and our chemistry. It's what you're seeing on the news. We need to say anything we can to these people to get them to be part of our cult. It's absolutely obliterating any creative thought these people have ever had. And it's ruining the chemistry of the country. I'm drawing this marriage comparison outwards. Finding matches is all that harder if you don't have a defined goal. Jobs said compared to Lucasfilm, what Pixar did right was keep moving forward. <laughs> so if the country is a relationship... Women are like a shark. If the relationship stops moving forward, it dies. And that's the Democrats with the state. Our fucking stupid-ass country is a marriage between the Repubs and the Dems. The Dems are the feminine f who are saying, if we don't move closer to a world government, then what are we even doing? Are we moving towards the stars? And we don't have the same goal. I'm just uh, trying to bash some Ds before the end. Uh, the early writing room days, everybody was a man, he said. And then the ultimate brain trust is basically a locker room. And you're not expecting to hear this from Ed Catmill, the geek on AutoCAD. But he's right. In order to get in the mood for the show, I just picture a locker room full of dicks. What was <laughs> grabber by the pussy? It's locker room talk. I remember kids... Having rap battles, you would lock each other in the locker rooms. <laughs> Bro, we would take dipshits, and then the uh, the school security officer would come in and kick in the stall door like he was the SWAT team just to try to catch you with a chaw in. I should have bought that up today. Nicotine is very closely linked with creativity. Go check out Stephen King. Designers, everyday flow, are finding whatever chemicals they can get to snoop in. He's going, the most destructive thing that ever happened to Pixar, this was after Steve Jobs left, was called Notes Day. Let me just preface this. Steve Jobs left in 2006, and that ended like they started getting drug tested after, he said, so the chemicals are not in their veins. Everybody's getting streamlined into the corporate culture. Edmill getting into uh, notes day. <laughs> it's the one day a year that you could just rat on all of your buddies. Pixar was encouraging the designers to write how they think other people spent their work day. 
how much they <laughs> attributed their time to the lunchroom and everything, the value that they were producing monetarily. So they actually asked people to put a dollar sign on all of their co-workers' heads. Very fucking productive. This obviously ruined the flow in the designer's room. People were, like, sneaking around the office through the day just to try to see what everybody else was doing. Ew, man, that's like the <laughs> Soviet-Russian workplace. Someone's going to report you to Michael Eisner. I've joked about peer review in fourth grade. I don't give a shit what the booger eater thinks about my essay. Was it better than last time? Okay, then don't fail me, teacher. That's all that matters. And you got, like, a low-grade employee peeking over the boss's cubicle and writing in their little notepad. <laughs> I'm saying the seniority flips when you have these type of systems where you could just tattle on each other. I can only imagine how bad it's getting in the offices with PC culture, bovid. I get threatened by my boss because of OSHA every day. It's not a law, buddy. <laughs> you guys look into this shit. It's all a bluff. Most jobs ingrain beta waves into your head. Remember we've been doing this? It makes you think on a logical short loop where actual creativity and, dare I say, intelligence comes from the thetas and those other waves that are just numbed out by work culture. Like, you know, <laughs> I made the jokes, but after fucking Luca, after Encanto, there's going to be a trans Disney character. 50% of people that are post-op kill themselves. Good thing we're pushing kids that way. While <laughs> you're... Using your logical beta waves, we're not only handicapping human creativity, we're putting individual souls into a sense of unknown pursuit. <laughs> Remember he said before, getting people confused will destroy their creativity. Eisner implemented Circle 7. Remember he was the head of Disney's Creative Lounge? He kind of pushed away from Pixar a little bit. And he's like, it's not pure anymore, but I'll try to guide it in the right direction. This new Circle 7 had the entire rights to make sequels of Disney originals without previous designers' input. So, you know, Ed Mill, this is like his worst nightmare. He's saying, any movie you guys make, we can now turn it out and pimp it for as many sequels as we want. Boss Baby 11. Disney paid seven and a half billion dollars for pixar jobs is like another kind of entrepreneur he's an actual visionary you know he made a new system animation would not be where it is today without the collaboration of those minds disney sees a large dip in morale after circle seven is created and after all that notes day garbage disney offers picnics and lunchtime celebrations to help raise morale what <laughs> edmill put in was these were mandatory celebrations. They changed the lunch to mandatory in public. Like, you couldn't just hide in your office. And these are creatives. So you have, again, the intern is writing up one of the fucking artists because he snuffed her in the hallway and didn't say hi. This fucking guy is so beyond the spectrum. He doesn't even know how to put the letters H and I together, girl. I mean, <laughs> these people are not made to integrate and they're being forced to spend every day together Edmund said he was personally written up for not going into the lunchroom 
Like this was his thing. I just need to decompress and not be in the writer's room for a little while. But instead he has to go sow relations with the underlings who are going to be replaced in a month. He says, depending on what you're grooming your employees to do, morale events can do the opposite. I like that, <laughs> the pirate quote. Arg, beatings will continue until morale improves. That's what a lot of people see these office events as. We already hate each other. If we have to pretend we like each other, it's just shoving shit in the wound. Insult to injury. <laughs> now they have notes day for Catmill. He's, like, written up for a million fucking things. And this is when he pushed away and becomes that head director for Pixar animation. Uh, Circle 7, he said, destroyed Mulan. What was even that live-action remake? I didn't watch it. Did they even do I'll Make a Man Out of You in that? That would be misogynistic now. <laughs> I used that two years ago for the Feminine Mystique. And that book is about how real feminists in the streets, Nancy Friday... The creative ones who are making grassroots movements don't believe in a patriarchy. They want to become more manlier. It's a great characteristic to have. You're not supposed to speak up. <laughs> like Ed Catmull said, he wrote a note to Eisner saying, this Circle 7 shit has to come to an end. It certainly will not. They're making hundreds of millions. The creator of Mulan, the original one, actually quit his pensioned job at Pixar. He's going, the sanctimony of what we created is no longer there. Some of these guys took it seriously. And Disney was like, oh my god, we're actually losing men with integrity. They say, we're going to let you guys create The Incredibles 2, totally indie. And they gained a little bit more leash back with this. Remember that was about like uh, the media brainwashing people? However, I am suspect that The Incredibles 2 went through some of these woke filters. It's about fucking boss mom saves the day and Mr. Incredibles loses his powers. You know, all this matriarchal shit. <laughs> and Catmill did say that. They did run it through a couple of checks. So, just letting you know here that the total pure age of Pixar with no cultural Marxist influence is behind us. If you have um, Disney+, Plus, check out that old ones. Watch some Bugs Life tonight. Once you have the creativity muscle, Edmund says, artistic integrity is how you keep it from atrophying. Otherwise, you're just following blueprints. You aren't quite creating anymore. Catmull says it won't be easy, but easy isn't the goal. Excellence is. What a book. Thank you, the listener, for staying tuned for Ed Catmill's Creativity, Inc. I had a good time. I hope you guys are having a good holiday season. We're turning up the heat next week with AJ Somethings, The Year of Living Biblically. This man went around the world. He spent time with the Amish and did his pilgrimage to Israel, all to tell us about if it's even viable to live as a fucking priest in today's world. Of course not. There is no medical exemption for <laughs> graphene-consisting shots, which the Bible says you shouldn't be putting metal inside of your bloods. This apostle AJ is going to rage against the machine for us. Big thank you to the listener at the end of the year. Uh, again, get on that Patreon time is dwindling to slide in there at the right price point. And then the memes over on Harry Schwant. 
was a fun time today. We're gonna be rolling more with this creative idea, letting it cut loose and just splicing in the facts when needed. Always storyboarding a good plot for the hour. And I hope you guys feel a little bit of a brain trust atmosphere when you see this show pop up into your feed every Tuesday. Thank you, the listener. My name is Nick Munez. See you all in seven short days. Later.